you got Paul Mellon McFadden here sitting in the Middle East where it's it's just too hot to even talk about. How are you going there, Mike, on the East Coast? Hey, Mel, what's going on, man? Uh, yeah, everything's starting to open up out here. Things are getting better. Weather's nice. I'm actually going to hit the beach shortly after this, so no complaints here, man. Can you go across the road and have a frothy afterwards, or is it still off limits? Uh, no, you can go over and have as many frothies as you want. It's just uh, you can only sit outside, I think. So, uh, you know, lots of all people pretty good coming out. All sounds pretty good to me. How about you there, Raf? How you going up in a little slice of God's country in the hills? Yeah, I'm just enjoying the weather. It's uh, wet one day, dry the next, but mostly just been uh, trying to get my cardio, chasing after Soren because that kid keeps getting faster every day. Awesome. Yeah, the bean. So yeah. uh, we've, we've again been uh, scratching our brain cell that the three of us contribute towards. And we've been thinking about this week, the topic we're looking at is what's your definition of healthy masculinity? And for us, I think this is a topic that's, it's timeless, but it's definitely something where I feel in the current conversation in the West, people have lost their way a little bit with um, misconceptions on sort of all sides. There's definitely a, a sense of toxic masculinity being something that's very clear. And so the three of us, uh, really want to sort of put out there and have a bit of a scratch around what we think healthy masculinity is. So uh, without further ado, we'll kick off with Raph. Hi, I, thank you for that. So I've given this quite a bit of thought um, and I, I really just kind of boiled it down to a, just a couple of points uh, that I really think encompasses what healthy masculinity is, right? And now I'm, I'm comparing this to where I'm at now and how I've, I've arrived here versus where I was as a younger guy. Um, the first one is actually staying power. And what I mean by that is uh, now that I'm older, now that I, I, I'm more focused on the things that are important in my life, I've realized that to be a real man, right? It's, it's about, about building your staying power. And I, and I mean that through your relationships, uh, through work, through just, whatever it is that, whatever challenge that you have. And so the example I'm given is, you know, sometimes when you're at work, there's a lot of work to be done. And it's all, if you're a man, it really, you shouldn't be shaman, right? If, there, if there's people, if you're in the room and people are working, you need to be working with them, right? A real man is literally gonna be the last guy that's gonna stop working. You shouldn't be sitting down, drinking a soda, watching other dudes, you just, that's not the definition of manliness. It just isn't, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be shaman. I mean, it's, you should feel guilty if your boys are in the trenches and you're like cutting it short by 10 minutes. And then the other thing for a relationship is when I was younger, I was quick to, you know, I'd, I would date a girl and the minute it got tumultuous, I'd, I'd want to walk away. I, I literally would start looking for excuses about why this wasn't going to work for me. Wow, you know, we're so different and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, now that I'm married, I've been married 10 years. It's not gotten easier. As a matter of fact, I think it gets harder. But the thing that has helped me, and I think it's helped my wife, is at the end of it, you just have to, you have to realize that um, it's, it, it's, you have to build your staying power, right? You have to find a reason why you need to stay, not why you need to walk away. And it, because so much is at, is at stake. I mean, we have a son, we have a home, 
we have dogs. I mean, who's, who's going to get the dogs? It just, it gets complicated. Uh, so anyways, that's, that's what I mean by staying power. But it applies to quite a bit. That's, by the way, that's my son in the background, Soren, who's playing with the, the, the dog you bed. hear the bed coming in. Yeah. yeah, that's that's good, Raf. So, like, what what I'm hearing there is like staying the course and achieving what you said you're going to do, and not being put off by stuff that comes up. Because like, stuff comes up, right? All the time. Oh my god, all the time. I mean, you know, I could literally wake up with a headache or I'm hungry, and I, you know, I might be a jerk, and that offends my wife, and then my wife gets mad, and then I get mad because she gets mad, and it's just this constant perpetual cycle. Um, but that, but that's why you have to kind of come back and you have to think, pause for a second, and be like, okay. The, the, honestly, the easiest thing to do is to walk away. It always is. So all, all that to say, the implications when you really do apply staying power is that you become a tenant in the success of the people around you, right? Like you, because you're, you're helping building them as opposed to just walking away and letting it deteriorate and just kind of leaving it to, to chance, leaving it to whatever. Um, and, I, and I think that's important. And the second point I, I really think is important is you want to enhance your emotional IQ, and I think what's happening today is a is a good is a good good reason why why you should do that. You know, it, it's kind of like that, and I know you guys have heard this before, but calm always breeds calm. And if you're emotional, if you have a high emotional IQ, you're you're really less likely to get irate or get fall into that tribalism that we're kind of watching uh, as it's going around. You know, destroying cities and and destroying relationships and just so. I don't want to delve too much into it because they can get kind of sticky politically. But my point is, as a man, you want to be the calmest guy in the room because usually the most rational thoughts come when you're calm, right? Because you have that thought process, you're, you're connecting uh, points through reason and you're, you're trying to find the, the best outcome. Whereas if you're doing it completely off emotion, more than likely, nine out of 10 times, you're going to fail flat on your face or you're going to commit a crime or you're going to hurt somebody, you're going to offend somebody. It just nothing good comes from it. So I think real men should have high emotional acuity. You know, man, it's like you're, you're speaking directly to me today. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I'm feeling this all week. Um, relationship stuff with me right now is staying power, dude. You, <laughs> I wasn't even expecting you to like come up and say that, but it's really speaking to me. So I just wanted to like add in on it. One of the hardest things is, as a man is the way we're built is we are so go, go, go. Like, where's my objective? I, I want it right now. Like I, I'm going to bust my ass and get to it in real life. It doesn't work that way. It takes time, especially with like relationships. It's, it's just going to take time. It's a process. And literally everything in society today is built on instant reaction, whether it's on your phone, whether it's on like, Hey, I want to go out and just buy this. I want it right now. Oh, Amazon. That's going to take a week. Nope. I want Amazon prime. I want it tomorrow. You know, uh, it's just built on that and there's no patience. So I definitely think the question of asking yourself, okay, what does this mean to me as a man? What, what, what is the basis of it? Like, why am I so attached to this? Like, why do I want this in my life? And if you really, really want it, you, you got to have that staying power. You got to hold on to what you believe in because there's a million reasons of other people that will come in and be like, no, man, just forget about it. Just move on. Just do this. Just do that. Uh, you could have something else right now if you wanted it to. And it's just like, as a man, 
you know, you're sitting there reflecting and you're just like, number one, how do you know what I feel? Number two, I'm not a quitter. You know, like that's not what a man does. A man doesn't quit on something he loves or cares about. And three, it's just like, man, this is my life. You know, like I appreciate you and your concern, but this is my life. And, you know, I went back to, you know, another episode of thinking, thinking with your, your heart and not your head, because your head will tell you to do a hundred things. Your heart usually tells you to do one thing. So being a man is being able to do that and realize it's worth it. That calmness as well, Raph, is really good. I a hundred percent agree. The older I am, the more I'm able to have that match between heart and mind that you don't have that somewhere that you hear it described as cognitive dissonance where you have that split between what's happening in your head and what's happening in your heart and having those emotions that drag you off. You know, the thing that is in control, it has to be the only part of you that can learn over time and improve. And that's, that's your head, you know? And so that has to be the thing that's ruling you rather than having these emotions that come up. Like we've all seen a guy on a team, sporting team, military team, or a work team who is just doesn't have that control. And you, you don't want to work with that guy. You definitely don't want him there when you're under the pump. You've got a mission to complete. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm about to share the, my last point. And this is a bit personal. And I really debated a lot whether I wanted to share this or not. But I figured, you know, if somebody could learn from my own ineptness, why not? Um, but the last one was, I just said, you know, a man should be able to wear other people's shoes. And that's, a, that's just a simpler way of saying, have some empathy for something, especially for something you don't understand, um, because that's fertile ground for hate, right? And I, we're watching that across, it's ripping our country apart right now. So I think that's more than ever, it's really important to, to hear. And my, my personal experience with this was when I was in Afghanistan, uh, and Mike, I know you kind of are familiar with the story uh, when we were overseas together, but uh, in Afghanistan, and I'm going to just do, it's a, I'm going to try to shorten as much as possible, but there was a group of Taliban that were emplacing bombs not far from our FOB, our forward operating base, uh, probably six to 10 kilometers. And it was a really, really bad night. It was dark. The visibility was probably a quarter mile. There was dust in the air. I mean, you couldn't see your hand in front of you. It was just that bad. Even with nods, it was difficult to see more than, you know, maybe half a kilometer in front of you. So... As it, as it was common, uh, we knew that the day before, the, our pages, our, our, uh, we have these little kind of good, Goodyear blimp-looking things that float above the, the fob, saw a vehicle come up, stop, and then drove off. And uh, we were able to deduce that they basically, because it's very common in those areas, they would cut out the floorboards on the vehicle and then stop at a place and then basically drop the explosive device through the floorboard and then drive off. So it looks like, you know, none the wiser if you don't know what's going. So they left later on that evening, uh, three men showed up to the side of the road and started digging and they were essentially digging to lay down command wire. And then obviously that would eventually lead to the death of coalition forces or anybody they wanted to kill. Well, we caught them in the act. And so our Colonel, who's an amazing leader basically gave us the green light. Cause it, you know, all the, they, all the check marks checked off for, for them to basically get captured or killed. Now, he had to make the decision. Do we send uh, Blackhawks in there with our Pathfinders, which are kind of uh, plussed up infantry guys that have some technical training on how to rescue and how to, uh, how to you know, they, they just have some more expertise training. But, uh, but the visibility was bad, and that, was, that would be a risk. Ultimately, we decided to just let the Apaches kind of um, 
basically take them out because they have they had the optics with FLIR to be able to see through the dust, whereas I had I was only flying with nods with my crew, and it would be very difficult to go in and do an assault on them. And so all this to say, these guys ended up getting killed, all three of them. They, they tried to run away, but eventually they were able to get gunned down. But we still had to fly in to recover the bodies uh, so they wouldn't be used for propaganda. And, you know, because they had all their military equipment on them. Um, and at the time, and I'm sure they're still doing it, you know, they would take the vest off and they would take all their military equipment off and say they were just, you know, innocent people. So we went in and we recovered the bodies. It was probably the slowest flight of my life because we literally went as slow as possible. And I hugged the ground within 30 feet off the ground to be able to see any sort of terrain. It was just that bad. We bring them back. And this is really where the story, this is what the story is about. We, we bring them back in body bags. And I was about to walk away, you know, after we shook hands with the infantry guys. And one guy just starts laughing. And I mean, but he's laughing from like his stomach. And I'm like, what's so funny? He's like, dude, you got you to gotta see this. And I, and I look and I walk back over. And one of the guys one of the rounds had hit him right in the hip and damn near dislocated his femur from his, from his hip. So the round, so the round hit this guy and dislocated, well, it hit him in several spots, but it dislocated his leg from his hip. And when he was laying in the body bag, his leg was laying completely on his stomach and his chest. And it looked like basically he had kicked it, you know, like he was trying to kick his own face. And I, of course, at the time, dark humor as it is, I started laughing too. And it's just, it's what you do to try to process what you see because it's not normal to see a guy who with a dislocated leg with his boot laying next to his neck right if you don't laugh you crawl right right exactly but we did i mean everybody there we stood around and we're all just laughing and kind of just making light of the situation it was months later when i started to realize like details about what i was seeing started creeping back into my head and kind of i started noticing that this guy i had seen enough taliban fighters by that time that i could kind of I could really pick one out of the lineup. And I thought to myself, man, this guy didn't fit the bill, right? This guy didn't fit the hardened Taliban fighter. You know, a lot of Taliban guys had clean hands. They had these gleaming white shoes. They had a, a certain dress that they had. And this guy, looked, he looked the part of a farmer. And so I thought to myself, you know, this guy was probably coerced into what he was doing. Because I've seen it, you know, and Mike has seen this too, where the Taliban would threaten families and would threaten dudes to go do, you know, biddings on their behalf. Um, they would try the money, and if the money didn't buy their services, they would threaten them with, you know, taking their daughter, killing their family. I mean, this, this, this is real. I'm not making this up. And so I, the reality sunk in that this guy definitely wasn't Taliban. He was core somehow, and I started to feel bad. And all that to say, in that a real man wouldn't have laughed. A real man probably would have gotten down on a knee and said a prayer on behalf of this, of, this dead, of this dead soul. Because, yeah, he was the enemy, but that's relative, right? He was, friends to a, he was friends to a wife. He was friends to his kids. He was, the point is, a real man would have taken a knee and he would have said a prayer. He wouldn't have laughed. And, of course, I felt to say terrible is an understatement. But, uh, anyways, all that to say... That's why it's important as a man, as a real man, to wear somebody else's shoes, just to change your perspective so that you don't do disgusting things or, or that you're, you don't do something that's beneath you. That's such a personal thing to share, Raph. Like, thanks very much for opening your heart and sharing that with us. That's a really big deal. Hearing that there's a, you know, possibly like a part-time enemy soldier rather than a, one of the hardened core. And he was obviously out there engaged in, action that was going to lead to fatalities and you know 
he's in a, he's in a shooting fight and he's 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 not come out as a winner but to hear you really share that and hear that sense of you know perhaps that empathy if you'd shown it at the time it might have been something that was a blessing for you later you know help you out yeah and like i said in the beginning i you know i laughed with the rest of them but it was months later that it just kind of creeped in and i i started i started looking at things rationally i started remembering the things that i was seeing and i and i and i knew in my gut i knew he wasn't taliban he was doing bidding on behalf of them but you know the backstory i wasn't aware of but mike knows uh there was a lot of um, techniques that uh, the Taliban would use to try to get people that weren't combatants to do stuff on their behalf. Yeah, they well, absolutely three... love that tactic. Yeah. Well, that's three pretty good uh, points you got there, Raf, of staying the course, enhance your emotional IQ, some calmness and empathy, wearing another person's shoes. Rob, Mike, masculinity, what's healthy masculinity for you, man? Yeah. So listening to Raf's story is just bringing up a lot of things. Uh, some of the points I had, man, I'm, I'm honestly just going to change them because uh, he, he has some really deep, uh, deep points there. Uh, this first one goes into right what he said and don't glorify evil and sacrifice your humanity. War is uh, war for a man is war with himself, war with the enemy, war with your own humanity. Um, you don't gain perspective and have a good base, all, all three are going to suffer. Um, similar story. Well, kind of, uh, so I keep a picture of this. Uh, so I'll tell the story, but I'll tell you what picture that I keep is a good reminder of this. So it was 2012. Uh, it was my last mission in Afghanistan. I was getting ready to leave. It was the day before Easter. Okay. We got pretty good intel that there was this Taliban leader that was meeting in this village on a, uh, you know, kind of a time sensitive thing. And uh, the task force I was with, we were going to go launch and uh, go out and nab this guy. It was a hasty mission. We're like, hey, let's quick plan and we're going. Those are the best kinds anyway. So uh, my friend and I were on an LTA TV. It's basically like a beefed up, uh, thing with a roll cage and we had machine guns mounted on it and a bunch of gear and uh we would drive these onto the chinook helicopter the chinook would come in land drop their ramp and we would take off out of the out of the back and run down you know we call them squirters not that kind but a squirter is somebody who's running from target or anything that you know you're squeezing the target and people start running it's how we go and round them up so that was mainly our part uh we were supposed to get to the south end of this village uh, if anybody's been to Afghanistan, you can see these big wadis that can be up to a mile long that connect the villages and these Taliban use them to uh, squirt between villages and try to get out on their little motorbikes. So we were completely shutting off the southern exit. Well, big role was they were targeting us specifically. They knew we didn't roll in conventional vehicles. So they were building these IEDs, uh, spiderweb charges. So basically you'd have one main charge with about six to eight smaller charges all tied into each other. So if you hit one of them, literally the entire field would go up and hoping of taking you out. So we knew this and planning our route in was always very hard. Well, we got down, we landed, the helicopter almost rolled over because the pilot didn't adjust right 
for TTP's reasons because they came from Iraq versus Afghanistan. That's another thing. So that was a good start. Wake you up. And uh, we're driving through a field and we had to cross a road. Well, we stay off the roads because there's IEDs. And I got out. I went over to the road and I'm looking. It just rained the day before. And I'm looking at the roads for fresh dirt. I'm looking for antennas. I'm looking for any disturbance that I could find for an IED. We had a certain asset check-in up above. I get on my radio. I say, hey, I need you to look at the road for me. Please let me know if you see anything. He comes back. He's like, hey, man, I got nothing. And for the first time, that whole deployment, something was wrong. You could feel it in, in your bones. And you're like, something's wrong. And I asked him again. I said, hey, I need you to check one more time. He came back two minutes later. He's like, hey, man, I got nothing. You're clear. And I turn around, looked at my buddy. He's like, dude, we got to go. We got to get down there and shut this thing off so nobody gets out. I got into it, and he's just like, I'm just going to gun it. We're going. We start going. We go across the road. I took a deep breath. We got off the road and just left it out. And it was one of those moments where you look over at your buddy and you don't say anything, but you're just like, yeah, we're lucky. We got down. As soon as we got down to the southern part, this here comes old dude cruising on his little moped bike. We wrapped his ass up, flex cuffed, you know, got him out. We, we were like, hey, we're pretty sure we got this guy. Threw him in the back of the LTATV, and we had to leave quick. Um, so we drove right back over our tracks that we went through the field, crossed the same road over the same tracks, got to the helicopter, drove on, we came back. That evening, we're back at the base. And uh, I was out doing some uh, ordinance checks and comms and making sure that we're all good to go post-op stuff. And about an hour later, my buddy comes in. He's just like, hey, dude, what's going on? I was like, nothing, man. Hey, we're up on weapons comms. Like, everything's good to go. And he's like, yeah, so I got some good news and some really good news. And I was like, okay. And he has a packet, right? And he hands it to me. And there's old boy's picture that we turned over to the uh, Afghan police. and. They process them and they're like, hey, man, that's that's like number two in the province. Like that's that's a hell of a way to go out before, you know, we go home from uh, deployment. And I was like, dude, that's that's awesome. Like high five, literally. And then he's like, yeah, so here's the really good news. Well, the asset that checked in above us sent us an email later that evening. And it's of a macro and a micro picture of the overhead of where we were. And then the, the zoomed out picture, you can see our tracks go up and then a 90 degree turn across the field and go across the road. And on the road, there's a little tiny dot. Like, okay. So I look at the next picture and it's a zoomed in picture of the road. And there's something buried there right under the passenger side tires where I was sitting. We're like, what the hell is that? So we uh, talked to the Army EOD guys that were on base. They went out, I think, a day or two later. We gave them the coordinates. They went out and did it. They dug it up. It was like a 30-pound IED with a pressure plate. Should have turned my ass into pink water. Um, man, the emotions that I felt at the time, like Raf kind of said, was kind of like a celebratory. Like, man, like, how crazy is that, you know? And it was just kind of – it didn't sink in at all. Uh, as time went on and I left shortly after that and then I got home, uh, these guys were still over there. 
it really starts sinking in about that that could have been it man not just for myself but for my buddy too that was with me i mean he's got you know he has kids and all this stuff and going through my mind man and like that humanity piece is just really setting in so that took that's taken me years to really process along with some other things but your staying power with realizing like hey man i'm a human being and what you're going to feel and go through is very tough um, but you realize, Hey, what do I have to do to go through this to maintain my humanity? Uh, that's, that's the definition of a man, especially with military service. How did you integrate that later, Mike? Like, how did you, how did you, what was the humanity part? Like, how did you get that? I mean, that is just a full on story, man. Like Raf and I both do ISR, have done a lot of ISR flying. Like the, the eye in the sky has been Raf and me both. And I know exactly what you're talking about. That's full on. So how did you manage to integrate this, you know? It took me years. Honestly, I had no idea how to really reflect on it. Not until, honestly, within the last few months, you know, that's eight years ago, um, have I really done a lot of reflection. And, you know, it goes back to asking those questions of like, why? Why did this happen? Why didn't that go off? You know, there's no way of knowing. I'll never get an answer. It's realizing that okay it happened i'm still here i'm still a human being i have a choice to be happy and you know take it as a lesson not as a almost died you know not as a failure as nothing but take it as a lesson and it's going to make you appreciate things more and then the little things in life matter that much more when you can change your seat, change your perspective on it and really look at it and be like, yeah, man, that happened. But you know, I'm, I'm still here. Like, why am I, why should I be upset? You know, like was my time and I have stuff to do today, you know, whether it's, you know, go out and take a drive, go to the beach, spend time with my family, with my friends, with a loved one. I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of it, man. And to be able to see the beauty through all of it, that's where you need to get to. I got, for me, what you've just described there is a really powerful thing where you can define your context. So the event that happens is the content, so the occurrence, and then the way that it occurs to you, like the way you see it is the context that you have. And so you could have had that happen and view it like a hundred different ways. And like what I'm hearing is a healthy masculine energy is able to in the reflection and the looking back on it, find a context that gives you power in the present moment that you, yeah. it, could, it could have been something that broke you down. And you just always like that could have been, that could have been it was such a massive thing. And instead you're able to find a way over all this time because you didn't stop processing. You didn't stop going back and reflecting on it. You found an empowering context where you've got an energy. Now you got to, you can see the beauty in the day. Like I had a lot of that off definitely with my daughter and the, the close uh, runs with death we had with her that appreciation of like just little things you have now, you can be beautiful from a context you apply to something that had already happened. It could be a long time ago. Yeah. And like exactly what Raf said, the staying power, right? You got to have staying power to continue to process, to continue to try to understand is be very easily for me just to be like, Oh my God, that happened. I'm going to go drink at the bar, numb myself to death, 
start doing drugs or just doing unhealthy things that I know aren't going to fix. It's going to take away a temporary, but it's just like, no, man, I need to have the strength, the support system, because like, I'll be first to admit, I didn't do that on my own. Uh, Raf has been there for me many times. My friend, Jimmy, family, friends, like a lot of very important people in my life that's helped me process and, and get me to where I'm at. So I'm extremely blessed and thankful to have such a amazing support group in my life to help me get there. So I did not do it by myself. Um, Which can yeah. be funny, you know, like when you, when you think perhaps like, you know, I might've had a childhood or an adolescent or maybe early twenties impression of what, a, what healthy masculinity is. And it's like the man who does it all himself, the John Wayne grits his teeth and gets through. And it's like a really healthy masculine uh, individual is able to recognize and reach out. Like you've told us in other podcasts, but like, you don't have to have all the solutions, you know, that sense that, cause you can all think that that's, that's what that guy at the top of the totem pole has that, that, that alpha male in his group is he's got it all, you know? And like, you've shared that with us a few times. I think that that might be a, uh, a point that's going to resonate with our listeners. Yeah. You know, just the last thing is I'll say is, well, not the last thing I'll say, I still have a point, but you know, a bullet will take me out just as fast as it will take anybody else out. And the minute you forget that, you know, you're, you're on the wrong path. You got to be in the present moment, right? Yeah. I think, um, just listen to what we've been talking about. I think the overarching theme for healthy masculinity is first the realization that you're not in this alone and that essentially we're all guardians of, we're, we're all here to kind of push back against chaos. And I, and I mean, every man has his individual job, but don't forget that you're in ranks, but you're in rank with other men. And if you all just realize that, Hey, I'm not the only dude, there's like, you know, a, 50 other million guys that are in my shoes, just they're, they're fighting back against their own sort of chaos and kind of helping quell that madness around the world. And so I always think of myself as I'm, I'm part of a larger group, but I'm just trying to do my part within what I can affect immediately. And I, it sounds like my, you know what I'm talking about, you know, that's um, and that's why. Yeah. That's an awesome perspective, Raf. Like thinking about, you know, our connection. I didn't know you guys a couple of years ago, like four or five years ago. I didn't know you, Raf, And through you, I've met Mike. And knowing that there's there's amazing people out there in the world that we, you haven't met yet, that's yeah. that's a really good one. And that you can lean on, just like Mike said. I mean, that's I'm glad that he leaned on me because that's that's why I'm here. And one day I'm gonna have to take a knee and lean on him, and that's you know, so I can get back up on my feet, so I can fight against chaos. I mean, it's just that's what manliness is. Like we're always in constant battle with that, but you know, among brothers and sisters. One of the point, great sisters. One of the points I want to add here is that we're talking masculinity. We're not talking. We're not talking manliness. We're talking about an energy and a trait and characteristics. And these are available to men, women. They're available to children. They're available to older people. And there, there are healthy expressions of all of these. And I think, I think we're really highlighting a, a, a lot of the good ones. And they're available for all, all of us. You know, I'll be the first to say that uh, there are some very special women in my life who have helped me way more than any man could ever do. And to be able to turn around and, and go to them and just open myself up and be like, Hey, look, this is who I am. And that's, that's me. And they will take it, absorb it and turn it around into something beautiful. That's really helped me that no man could. That's awesome. Well, um, a couple of my points, we don't want to keep everyone too long here. 
one of the things my dad always went on a lot about was self-discipline. And I really think that that is a really healthy uh, expression of masculinity and that uh, you can get that like assertiveness versus of aggressiveness. And when I was younger, definitely I thought like men were aggressive and there's that inner strength that comes from someone who they're assertive. They're not going to be pushed around, but they're definitely not overreaching. Like they're not putting other people down to get ahead. There's that sense, like you've just said, Raph, that we're in a, there's a group of us, you know, we're all holding the line together. There's, we're all going the same way, you know, and you can find that balance. And one of the points around self-discipline is one of the definitions I heard from uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. I know a few of us here listen to him is the, the discipline is you sacrifice today for a better tomorrow. And it can be a religious sense, but definitely I know in life when I'm working at something that's on a long-term goal, you know, you're giving up that couple of hours here or there. And over time you're living into that future that you're creating. And that ability to put your word to something and have staying power requires that self-discipline that you have, you have your goal in mind and you're able to work and give up these periods that you otherwise would sit on the couch and watch a football game and, you know, go and have a frothy with Mike down the beach. But, so self-discipline is really one for me. Other ones there is uh, decisiveness and decisiveness as opposed to impulsiveness. So, uh, I know when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't spend these times of reflection like Mike has been talking about before making decisions. There was, um, I know that this shifted for me. I actually was, you've just reminded me, Mike, of a, uh, an incident. I was doing an ISR mission. Uh, this is a, an, a surveillance, an eye in the sky role over Baghdad back in Gulf War II. And we had a really high priority strategic tasking. We were involved with surveilling an area in the city and there was a whole lot of stuff going on. But we knew things were quiet. There was like a, a Bradley fighting vehicle in every corner and every couple of blocks, there was a, an Abrams and there was just soldiers everywhere. And that was, that place was locked down. And we got a call come through on uh, Marit on the aviation uh, emergency frequency that all aircraft monitor, which is very unusual. And it was a call from a, it turned out to be an infantry company in distress. And they were just South of the city. And I understood my task well enough at this time, I was, I'd been deep into the, into the books and I just understood what we were doing there to know that I could immediately cut off this otherwise high priority tasking to go on. These, these guys had been uh, on a 14 day foot patrol south of Baghdad and not in vehicles. We got there and they had harbored up over, overnight in a uh, ruined, ruined series, series of buildings. First light, they sent out their clearing patrol and got full ambush uh, RPGs, indirect fire. It was pretty heavy engagement. And they called for any help and we went, we just blew off our other tasking. And I started to get people down the back end of the aircraft with tele, the, the tasking coming in from the headquarters saying, you guys need to go back to your high priority tasking. And I knew I was the person with the hands on the controls and I was the captain of that aircraft and I knew what was happening with these guys on the ground. And there was no way to get that detail through all of the communication systems back to the generals in the rear and that ability to be decisive in the moment. So we then just, in our previous task and went and we sat with these guys and you know we we did exactly what you're talking there mike of like providing a clear area around that pl the platoon that had gone out the clearing patrol we could push it back we knew that we had a couple hundred meters safe around them they could recover their wounded get them back in and then there was a long extraction this is like a long mission we went right down a vapors on the fuel wheel unable to get back to the 
place we'd taken off from. We're having to whiz up alternate fuels to go to other places that none of us had ever gone into before. And no one on the crew wanted to do it except for me and everyone wanted to stop. And we were able to stay there until we arranged for a support aircraft, which is a, uh, a fighter aircraft, a British uh, formation of tornadoes were able to get out there with their FLIR. And they, they ended up doing like a hot handover of these guys just as they were getting extracted. And it was like they couldn't send helicopters in for extraction because the, the fear was now it's going to be a sandbush. The whole thing was like a, on this massive escalation that they'd clearly been tracked and the enemy was operating with intent. And so my point out of that is when you've done the work, when you understand your role, you understand what the mission is, you're able in the moment to be decisive and take action to achieve the intent that you know that the, the, the overall mission is being served by rather than a predetermined play, playbook that you're running off, you're able to act in the moment. And so that's my decisiveness versus impulsiveness. Yeah, that's spot on, man. That's, that's, that's a great story for one. And I, I'm like living it in my head as I'm hearing it. And I just could like imagine being that platoon on the ground because I've been that guy and just all the stuff that you guys have to go through and the decisions. I mean, that's what makes you, that that's what makes you man and it makes you human being is that you're feeling those, those feelings because there's other people on the ground or other people that are depending on you, you know, it's, and I'd say, I'd say that, you know, the stories about the air force always being at the bar and, you know, having fluffy pink pillows, most of them are true, but I mean, we're all in it together, but I think perhaps my, when I was 17, I joined the Australian army and I had a bit more of an understanding of what these guys were doing there. And the fact that they had no vehicles, I was like, these guys have been doing it tough. Like, this is grim. And it was a 15-click force march. It's like a, something out of a film for them to get to their evac point because it was such, considered such a high-risk area. Anyway, so one of my points is masculinity can be – it can go too far. It can go into that aggression. It can, it can shift off being focused and disciplined and active with a purpose and a vision. And it can become – destructive it can become narrow-minded and it can become aggressive and one of the things that one of my points i've really picked up on in the last couple of years is you know the yin yang sign you got the black and white but in the in the black there's a dot of white and in the white there's a dot of black and if we're talking about uh masculinity being one side you need a little dot of the other so we need a little dot of the feminine energy to balance us out and so some of that being open, some of the stuff you guys have talked about with the reflection and emotional IQ and empathy, those are classic feminine traits. And all three of us obviously are, you know, if you looked at our resume, pretty high on those masculine traits naturally. And it sounds like the three of us have found a balance and maybe a bit of wisdom perhaps, if we could be so bold as to say that, from adding that little bit of the feminine side. And so the girls can also... Uh, they can benefit from a bit of that direction and strength and assertiveness of the masculine side to come in and help balance them because they can go a bit too far into the unfocused and over-nurturing or unmotivated and that that little dot of masculine on their side can really help balance it out. And that was a framework I got from uh, Peterson again, who I have a lot of respect for. Oh, yeah, he's Dr. Peterson is brilliant. I mean, it's, it's, I'll, I'll have, be happy to say I would probably never argue because he would probably make me look just he'd probably make me look as stupid as I really am. But he's just he's so insightful and he's and he knows what he's talking about. He's been a clinical psychologist for over thirty years. Oh, and he's taught at what Harvard? <laughs> yeah. I mean, his resume speaks for itself. He's a very intelligent man, but he's also very in tune. 
Yeah, I, I think one thing just to add in, you know, we, we've all had these these stories and, you know, discuss different things. Um, I think for the listeners out there, you guys can really think about the definition of a truly masculine man or or a person, you know, that we're talking about like as a woman. Who is that person to you? You know, uh, why are the way they are? you know, maybe call them up, sit them down, have a conversation and really talk about some experiences like this. Uh, there is no better mentor. You know, for me, mine was my great uncle Bobby, who was a POW in Korea when he was a Marine and wow. he helped get through by whistling to other POWs. And he's the most beautiful whistler. And one day I heard him on the porch when I was a kid and I was like, wow, why is uncle Bobby outside whistling like that where did he get that from because he never talked about war he never talked about korea never talked about the bad things that he experienced and it was just kind of like you know he found his path to move past that and and focus on being a man he was a great father he was a great human being he was a great uncle to me i i mean all of it you know it's just what i think about that man he's he's that man you know that's getting through some adversity there, like Korean War POW. All right, so uh, just a quick recap there. Rath had his stay the course, so a masculine trait there of being able to achieve a goal in his work and relationships. And in the relationships, staying the course often develops others. Develop your emotional IQ, and one of the key traits there was being calm and not being moved by uh, negative emotions. And empathy that uh, really... You opened your heart to us, Raph, and shared that story about, uh, you know, the benefit of wearing another man's shoes and, and, and thinking about it on their side. Mike had some really great stuff around staying power and maintaining the humanity and going back and in reflection, integrating previous uh, experiences. And uh, I threw in my ones were my key one from my dad was uh, self-discipline. And that one that I've sort of moved into as an adult is the decisiveness. And just remember, it's a balance. This is not for men or exclusively, we're talking about human character traits and all of us, I think you, you, you'll agree, have got uh, some of the stuff that's not classically defined as masculine. So get that balance for yourself. So let us know what you guys uh, think of as masculine traits or what your definition of healthy masculinity is and let us know any stories you guys have. And remember, as Raf said, there are ranks of us. You know, there's, there's brothers and sisters out there going through Similar stuff, the exact story might be different, but the experience is very similar. So don't be afraid to reach out, uh, give us a like, make a comment. You can all reach us on our Gmail, not your average RAF, not your average Melon, and not your average Mike77 at Gmail. Take care, and until next time, stay focused.